I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Mike Lepresti is kind of like the North Star of sports writing. You always knew you were at a big game or an important event if you looked in a press box and saw Mike. He's probably covered more famous sports moments in the past 50 years than any other writer. Name it, and Mike was there for USA Today. And he was writing the column faster and better than just about anyone. I was fortunate to type alongside Mike many times through the years. You're lucky to hear some of his unique stories. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot for joining us. It's great to talk to you again. Glad to be here. Good to see you again. Hey, we're going to get into a lot of sports here today, obviously, and places that you've been. But there's one thing I want to ask you right off the bat. Sources tell me that you once were invited to go to lunch with the actress <laughs> Diane Lane. Boy, I, th- th- this is a sad chapter. Uh, yeah, they, this was when I was a U.S. Wait a minute, sad? How could it be sad because if it involves I, Diane to, Lane? Because I had to say no. That was just not as smart, yes. Yeah. So what happened? Well, they called me. This is when I was USA Today, and, and it's when the— the movie was coming out, uh, Secretariat, and they wanted to have, you know, to offer lunch with her and talk about the movie and write a, a review of the movie. And uh, boy, having lunch with Diane Lane is, is the, that, that sounded kind of exciting to me, except I didn't write the movie reviews. Someone else was going to be doing that. So I had in good conscience had to call back and tell the PR person, look, I'll be glad to have lunch with you, but I, I'm not going to be the guy writing the column. So I need to let you know that. So they, they had to move on to the person who would be doing that. So, yes, I had to turn down Diane Lane. Mike, you could have called me. <laughs> There's a number of people I know I could have called. You know, it's probably just as well because when I sat down at the lunch table, I would have knocked over the soup or spilled something and just come on, look, <laughs> looking like some some fool. But, uh, yeah, that was, that, that was a tough moment to have to say no. Oh, um, man. Well, declining that offer, you know, shows that you're an upstanding, honorable, <laughs> ethical journalist which means I don't know what the hell you were doing for four decades running around with a bunch of Cretan sports writers. Well, well actually, it wasn't, it wasn't long after that that I decided to retire. I figure if, if you can't have lunch with Diane Lane, it's time to get out of the business. So, you know, kind <laughs> the final push out the door. Well, Mike, in all seriousness, I, I do know how respected you are among your peers. Uh, you always had my total respect. Uh, over the years, we got to know each other covering mutual events. And uh, I always knew it was a big game. If Michael Presti was there, because Michael Presti was always at the big games, and so it kind of like validated my own uh, my own meek talent that hey, I'm actually sitting around with Michael Presti. This is great. So, so <laughs> I was so, I was always a lot better at picking the places to be than writing about them. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when, when I looked at the story I wrote when it was over, I thought, gee, this was a really good event. It's too bad I couldn't have done better at it. So, but I was always good. I was always good at scheduling them anyway. Well, no, no, no. You're being too kind. You were, you're, you know, I think of you as a pro's pro. You were always there. You always beat deadline. You did it with great copy. And I just always enjoyed reading your stuff. And, and I also think about your dedication. I, you know, I think about the fact that you once, is this true that you once dictated a game story while being put under anesthesia? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Probably the best story I ever wrote. You know, I was kind of half conscious. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I had covered a, uh, this goes way back. I was covering a high school playoff game, football game. And when I was writing it that night at the office, uh, I got a pretty bad stomach ache. I thought, well, once again, I've eaten too much pizza in the press box. But uh, <laughs> this one, I, 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 I couldn't finish the story. So I went to the hospital and they did some tests and they said, yeah, we need to, we need to take you right in and, and take out the appendix. But the, no story was there for the paper the next morning. So as I was in the pre-op room and they had given me the one shot where they kind of sort of relax you a little bit before they really get going, I had my notes and I called up somebody in the office. I said, this is going to be a little awkward. It's going to be a little different, but we're, I'm going to have to dictate something to you. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I hope I got the score right and the winning team correct. After that, everything would have been gravy on that story. <laughs> well, if you can deliver on our anesthesia, then I don't feel so bad about having to write a few with a hangover. You know, so. Well, I'll tell you, I, I've never gone back. Well, I never go back and look at any of my stories, but that one particularly I never wanted to see again <laughs> once it was out there. I have no idea what it sounded like. But, uh, Might have been some run on 
sentences uh, in that one. Quite possibly. <laughs> well, Mike, you spent, you know, 32 years as a USA Today sports columnist and, and writing for Gannett News Service. You retired in 2013, but you really didn't retire. You're still writing. You're still cranking them out. You're writing for the Indianapolis Business Journal. You're writing for NCAA.com. So it's great that Mike Lepresti is still in the business. Tell, well, tell us you. about what you're doing now. Well, thank you. Yeah, when I decided to, to retire USA Today, I, I wasn't ready to just say, okay, I'm done writing, but I wanted to scale back a little bit. So hey, I lucked out on a couple of things. The NCAA contacted me and wanted me to do some um, – College basketball, you know, features sort of thing and, and, and human interest things, which I like to do. So that's kept me pretty busy every college season since then. Uh, Indiana Business, Indianapolis Business Journal called me up one day and said, we'd like you to do a story. I said, well, I really don't write a lot of business. And they said, no, we want a, we want a sports feature every week. So I've done that since 2014. Well, I'm glad you're still writing. I mean, you know, you retired, but you didn't retire. Well, let's talk about the road a little bit. You were a true road warrior. When I think about the events that that you covered in your career, it just blows my mind. You covered more than 40 bowl games, major bowl games. I'm not talking about the Weed Whacker Bowl. I'm talking about major bowl games. 42 Final Fours, 32 World Series, 31 Super Bowls, 31 NBA Finals, 32 Masters, 16 Olympics. I was very fortunate. And, and, and when you say those numbers, I think back two things. One, I, it's a chance to see a lot of moments, you know, to, to, to have that in your memory bank that you were there to see that. Although a lot of those moments I saw about half of them because my, <laughs> you know, my eyes were on the computer and the keyboard, you know, a lot of the times, but also the number of places I, I, I've been able to travel to and experience that I never wouldn't have dreamed of going to. And, and certainly that starts with the Olympics. Well, when you were in when you were in the bulk of your career, what like how many nights a year would you be on the road? It would be it would go between 160 to 180, except on an Olympic year, and it would go over 200. Uh, so, you know, I, my wife, I, I lost my wife a year ago, but we were married 44 years, but we were really probably married about 20 uh, because <laughs> because I was gone a lot of the time. Other than that, but it, it, it probably just as well, you know. It, it, she got. She was able to take a lot of breaks from me, which was probably good. So, um, yeah, it, it would be. You know, you go back to the the eighties and the Olympics. Remember, the winter and summer games were the same year, so that that would be a really really heavy year. Uh, and you're trying to crowd all that together. Uh, I remember one time I was covering the Super Bowl in uh, in Detroit, and I was leaving Monday uh, after the Super Bowl for the Winter Olympics in Torino. And I'd got kind of sick during the, the Super Bowl week. It wasn't anything serious, but it was a nagging something. And no anesthesia uh, this time? No anesthesia this time. But, but it gets to be Saturday night, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to get on a plane to Italy on Monday, and I'm still feeling this way, and I have no idea what's wrong with me. So my only option by Saturday night is to go to the emergency room at a downtown Detroit hospital. Now, you have never <laughs> lived until it's midnight on Saturday night in downtown Detroit. You're in the ER. Uh, that, was, that was quite the experience. <laughs> I mean, they looked at me and said, well, you, you got a little virus or whatever, which I thought it was. But at least I could get on the plane to Italy uh, with a little freer mind. So, yeah, trying to crowd all those things together w w could be tough. But, uh, yeah, about 160, 180 days a year. Now, that leads me to this question, and it's a question that I've asked you before, and I want our listeners to hear this. How many Marriott points did you accumulate in your career? Well, I'm currently holding uh, about two points, just under two point six million. Now, I would add a lot. <laughs> I, I would add a lot more than that, but but I made a deal with my kids that whenever they got married, uh, I would, and I have three kids, I I would uh, send them on their honeymoon, and and it would send them really nice. So my oldest daughter gets married, and they want to go to Maui. So. Um, you know, I, I, get, I get in touch with a Maui Mary out there, and I said, okay, how many for a week and this many points? Well, how many if you upgrade the room with this many points? Well, how much if they get a penthouse with this much? And so we went to the top, and um, that took a big chunk out of them. And uh, uh, same way with the other kids. When my daughter and her new husband checked in the room, and the bellhop said, you know, Michael Vick stayed in this room. Well, I doubt if he turned in Marriott points for it, but I did. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, the number about traveling the, with the Marriott that, that struck me the most more than the points is they keep your lifetime 
a number of nights you stay. And uh, a few years ago, I happened to notice I had passed 2,500 nights. Now, when you think about that, that's spending more than seven years in a Marriott. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's quite a bit. It's In fact, not long after that, I, I was at a bowl game in, in Florida, and uh, as at a Marriott, of course, and I got in a, the elevator, and Bill Marriott happened to be in there. Where, you know, the, the son of the founder. Yeah, the son yeah. of the founder. And I would normally never, you know, if it was an athlete or a coach, I wouldn't have bothered him. But Bill Marriott, I couldn't let this chance go by. And I said, you know, Mr. Marriott, um, as a guy who spent like 2,400 nights in your room, in your hotel at that point, uh, can I shake your hand? He goes, hell for that. I'll let you shake it twice. So uh, <laughs> um, I, I, my, my great moment at that bowl game was I shook hands in an elevator with Bill Marriott. You, you, can't, get, you can't get a higher. That's, that's almost as good as lunch with Diane Lane. So, <laughs> so when you wake up at home in Richmond, you expect there's a mint on your pillow, and you've got a you've got a number you can call. They bring you extra towels. Yeah, the receipt under the door in the morning. Uh, yeah, oh, they yeah. don't do well, that anymore. I'm showing my age there. But I always yeah. expected when I walked into a, a lobby of a Marriott that instead of uh, you know Jay Willard or Bill a painting of them on the wall. I would see a painting of Mike LaPresti on the wall at the line. You know, one time I was, one time I was driving to Notre Dame for a game and I got caught in no man's land between Indy and South Bend and it was late at night. And I thought, well, I'll just pull over. And there was uh, a Fairfield Inn. I'm like, this is it, right? And there's a few other places, but you know, Fairfield Inn, I'm going to get some points. I go in and the guy says, we got a room, but I got to tell you, we don't have any hot water. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They should have given you double points for that, I would think. Yeah, I should have demanded them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, enough of this Marriott commercial. I do want to talk about traveling the world three decades. How many countries do you think? You ever add that up? Uh, no, uh, it would be um, – I'd have to count the Olympics because uh, – yeah. You know, there were there were how many ever I covered in the U.S. and take that number away. And then that's how many countries I went to. So I want to say 10 to 12, I would think. I mean, I started with Sarajevo uh, was my first Olympics and probably one of the more interesting just because Sarajevo was a, <laughs> as Olympic cities go, it was it was it was struggling. You know, not a lot of not a lot of modern conveniences when you compare to other Olympics. And then what became of Sarajevo? Long after the Olympics, it became, a, you know, the war zone when they had all the, the war there. And in fact, where I stayed, I'm pretty sure I, I found the right spot on the map. It ended up being a sniper's nest during the oh, war. Wow. And, and the, the, the Olympic Stadium, where I went to the first opening ceremony, ended up being a, a burial ground for war dead. So oh, I think back on Sarajevo, uh, that was a really interesting place to go. But um, yeah, so I mean, you think about uh, there's China and there's Korea and there's uh, Spain and England and France and Italy and I'd have to Greece. I'd have to go for eh, ten or so. I would think. What a life! I mean, when you think about it, you know we were very fortunate. I didn't travel nearly as much as you, but we were fortunate to travel like that, see the world, cover these events. You know, one thing though is that we were working, right? Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, yeah. you know. And I wanted to ask you about that. What was life like on the road for you as a as a sports writer? Um, traveling like that you know you're away from home your time clock is all messed up you're facing deadline how did you survive that type of uh travel uh some some weeks not very well it, it a couple of things i always did number one i never changed my my watch uh, just the idiosyncrasies even when i went to the olympics even when i went to china i kept my watch on 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 home time and uh just as a way of sort of grounding myself uh I, I always tried to make sure I spent a little bit of time enjoying the city I was in and not just the sports event. It is very easy to fall into a trap that all you do is go from the hotel to the arena and back to the hotel. And, right. I, and I never wanted to, uh, you know, even if I meant getting up very early and, and before having to go to the ballpark, you know, when I was in San Francisco uh, and I was there a lot covering different things, I wanted to make sure I got to know the city. When I was in London, I felt that way, when, no matter where I was. So uh, I, at the end of the day, no matter how tired I was from going to the games, I wanted to be able to say, well, I, I, I went to that city, too. I just didn't go to the arena. So th that sort of kind of kept the juices flowing. I always enjoyed, rather than thinking, gee, I've got to go cover, you know, yet another round of, of NBA playoffs, I thought, you see, I get to go to, to Phoenix or, or get to go to San Antonio. It's a couple of cities I really like. So 
I tried to think location more than sports events. So that's one thing that got through. Um, any any crazy travel stories? Did, weren't you on a bus once that caught on fire? Uh, that's at the Olympics. Yeah, that that was in uh, gee, Vancouver. In Vancouver? Yeah, Vancouver yeah. coming back from the mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that's the fastest I've moved since I was 50, I think. That, uh, again, so what the hell happened? Well, we what were just happened? driving down the, back down the, the road from the, the mountain down to Vancouver, and all of a sudden smoke started, you know, some of those buses had seen better days. So, yeah. It, <laughs> so, yeah, we were out of there in a hurry. And they said, uh, uh, well, we'll try to find you another bus. Well, I, that would have been my 15th Olympics. And I knew by then when they start saying, well, maybe we can find you another bus. And it's time to go to plan B uh, on transportation. So we, we called a cab out there and that got us there. So, yeah. Yeah. It, the, it, Olympic, the, the Olympic media buses, those were, uh, they, they had a life of their own. I mean, I was on a bus in Sydney, Australia once about three in the morning and uh, everybody's half asleep and we were flying down this hill, just going like crazy fast. And all of a sudden the bus driver just yells out, Hang on to something. <laughs> Boy, you never like to hear that. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. That's Fortunately, a, we all live to tell about it. I think there are some buses in Atlanta from the 1996 games that are still out there trying to find it. Because you know, I was on one one time in Atlanta because it, it became infamous the number of, of travel problem stories came out of Atlanta. And one of the problems were a lot of the bus drivers had never seen the city of Atlanta before. And they just sort of gave them a map and sent them on their way. And I remember one time we were lost and we kept going around in circles. And uh, finally, the bus driver, a young lady, just put her her head, forehead on the steering wheel and said, I want to go home. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you never like to see that from your bus driver either. So uh, no, that's not yeah, good. They were, you know, I, I, flying, you know, we all have stories in flying. I was, I was on the way. Um, to Minnesota one time. It was for the uh, NFC Championship game. It's when the uh, Falcons upset the Vikings, uh, whatever year that would have been. Um, but um, we took off out of Indianapolis and all of a sudden made a steep turn back to the airport. And the pilot came on and said, well, we've, we've got a little problem here. We've got a, a really Uh-oh. overheating engine. And uh, the thing we worry about now is a possible explosion. <laughs> that one word kind of, you know, got your attention real quick. And, and then I was sitting near an exit route row, and one of the flight attendants came back and sat in a seat right next to me so she could be right at the door. And she said to me, I've flown 20 years. I've never had to do this before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's uh, – you're like Chuck Yeager. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, Indianapolis Airport looked pretty good, and uh, I, I eventually did get there for the for the game in Minnesota. But I, you know, I remember that. Uh, well, t- well, travel was crazy. It was demanding, you know, and and difficult and hard, but also you know, great. Like you said, you got to see a lot of things, and you got to see some of the most historic sporting events. You know, in our lifetime, was it tempting to just take things for granted, or did you ever feel like there were times where you realize, wow, this is unbelievable. Oh, well, yeah. And, and, and I, it was sometimes you had to really work at that because being at some of the great moments, as you would well know, on deadline meant those were some of the worst moments Oh yeah, professionally. Now, they were great moments for people to watch and great memories, but you look back on them as nightmares. And the one that comes to mind first and always will is Kirk Gibson's home run mm-hmm. in the World Series? One of the great moments in World Series history, and everybody thinks back on that. And gee, what a what a great thing that was to watch. Well, <laughs> so here I am in Todger Stadium, and I'm writing a story. And as I mentioned earlier, my story was due five minutes after the game, and I had sent it in. And so I'm on the phone, ready to dictate how the game ends, a paragraph, and the story's going to be done. Boom. And then all of a sudden, Kirk Gibson comes limping out of the dugout. You know, some great moments, you get a couple of minutes, you, you kind of see it coming. You know, you get a whiff right. of it. That one, you had no idea what was – first of all, he wasn't even supposed to play. And he limps up there in his first two pitches. He looks like he couldn't hit a beach ball. And then all of a sudden, he hits the thing into the right field stands. And you have a great dramatic moment. And I have 25-inch story that has suddenly become worthless in about four and a half minutes to fix it. Tick, 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 tick. So um, 
I was privileged to be there, but I wish I would have been anything but a sports writer at that point. Yep, the old saying, great game, I wish I could have seen it. Yeah, and, and, and wish you had, you know, 15 minutes. I, w- I would have sold myself for 15. The problem, as you well know, is you write that and you butcher it because you only have 240 seconds to, to write something, but your name's on it. And the next morning, people who read it and read that maybe you butchered it, don't understand you only had four minutes to write it. They just see your name on a story that sounds like, you know, you wrote it under anesthesia. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, that, no, wait a minute, no, wait, wait a minute. I want to, I want to stop here a second because you're being, you're being too kind. You were known as the fastest gun in the West and the East and the North and the South. I mean, nobody could write on deadline the way that Mike did. And not only write and beat deadline, but write it so well. I mean, I, I remember the great Steve Weberg, your former colleague, his story. You had like 20 minutes to write a column and Weber, you asked Weberg to read it. And Steve scrolled through it, scrolled through it, scrolled through it. And then he turned to you and he said, you. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't I, write I, something that good if I had days or, I or hours or days. Well, thank you. I don't remember a word from that column, but I do remember those two words that Weberg said to me. <laughs> well, that was after a, uh, that was when the U.S. lost to the Soviet Union, the Olympics and basketball and in Seoul. And uh, I don't even know what the deadlines were. I know they needed it in a hurry. So, uh, yeah, they always know, needed it in a hurry. I mean, the, the secret, and most, you know, most guys did this, and I certainly did it. I would be writing a story. I'd be watching a game. I'd write like five versions of it. I mean, I'd be working right. from, and then so as you get to the end, you can kind of zero in on the one that you were the closest to. Now, in most cases, whatever story, it's like throwing darts. Yeah, absolutely. In most cases, uh, the story that ended up you having to write about would be like the worst version. You know, I, I look back and think, gee, if this team would have won instead of that team, this story sounded a lot better. So, oh yeah, uh, yeah. So, I, I still have a column uh, that says the Bengals beat the Steelers in that playoff game a few years ago. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I don't keep my columns, but I should have kept a few that never appeared, uh, like the one from the you know the one where the A's beat the Dodgers in Game One of that. World Series probably read okay, but not the one where where Gibson won with the home run. But it, it's and then you get things happen, and two times this happened to me. And it, well, first time wasn't my fault, second time was half my fault. This was at a playoff game, uh, the Cubs and the uh, and the uh, Giants. And I don't know if you ever had Coke or anything, any liquid spill on your computer on your keyboard. Yes, but. Um, yes, I have. I found out what happened that night when it does, at least on the computer I had back then. Because I'm, it's the ninth inning, and I've got the story almost done, and somebody spills Coke on my computer, and uh, for about, oh, 30 seconds. No, I'm, no wait a minute. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coca-Cola, yeah. Or, yeah, let's say Pepsi. To avoid any yeah. confusion, or let's liquid. say Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, liquid. Um, so anyway, I, I'm looking at my story on the computer, screen thinking, gee, I hope that didn't, that didn't affect it. And in 30 seconds, it just went and it's gone. And, and it's it's gone. I mean, it's gone for good. And again, there's two outs to go in the ninth inning and I've got to, so I had to pick up the phone and dictate that one too. Not under anesthesia, but I had to dictate that story. So I know how bad that was. Well, let's flash later to a bowl game in the Fiesta Bowl. So I'm sitting outside well, you know, they have the, a lot of the press outside on a, a row beneath the second deck of the stands. Sitting above us were fans. Well, we're in the fourth quarter, pretty late in the game, and somebody upstairs had knocked over a soda cup. And like out of the 100 media people sitting in the row below, who was the lucky guy that that cup nailed my computer dead on? And, and that's what happened. And now I knew from the previous experience, I had about 30 seconds did you ever try to memorize a story in 30 seconds? I mean, I looked at the screen trying to remember what I had written because I knew I was going to have to dictate it. And that's exactly it started, what it started off with. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the one I always keep in reserve there. You know, so. I, think, I think it was your competitor who uh, hired a fan to aim the, the Coca-Cola <laughs> and drop it onto your uh, computer. You know, I wouldn't put it past another sports writer. I've never been guilty of a felony, but had I found that person who did that, I would have been, you know. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, 
a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. I think I think one time you told me you covered a boxing match uh, and you said I had my win column uh, yeah. and I had my no, don't tell us what this was. Uh, yeah. uh, well, this noted noted fight expert that I am. This is in Vegas, and so I'm writing these. I had never really covered much boxing before, so I'm writing these two. You know, uh, if this guy wins, I'm ready with this. If this guy wins. I'm ready with this. I'm feeling pretty good. I said, there's only two ways this can go, and I've got two stories ready to go. And the announcer goes into the ring and takes the microphone and goes, we have a draw. (laughs) (laughs) Well, somehow the the prospect of a draw had never entered my empty mind. And so (laughs) I didn't have a lot to – I didn't have a lot done on that one. And uh, maybe that's the reason why I didn't cover a lot of boxing. Sometimes you did have time, a little time to write. Um, I think – you were at the 86 Masters, for for example, right? Yeah, and and that's one where that deadline was an issue. That the guy sitting next to me spoke for probably we well, spoke for me and lots of people in that press building when Nicholas wins at age 46, and um, it, it is such a moment, and the atmosphere is so electric, and the 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 achievement is so great. Uh, he said, I don't know if I'm up to writing this. And I felt mm-hmm. the exact same way that no matter how much time I had, uh, could I do that justice? And, and, and that was one of the, you know, probably the greatest things I ever covered as far as just feeling the importance of it. I mean, obviously when you're at championship games, you feel the importance of, of, of a title, but, um, you know, to see that man do that on that stage was was something really special. What was the emotion like on the course? Were you out out on the course at all? I, I, yeah, uh, some. As you well know, you get to the last stages of a golf tournament on Sunday. You really need to be in the press building because that's the only way you can follow everything on TV. And so, but I was out there earlier, and for some of it, and I remember what, how Greg Norman described that day, and it was perfect because he was playing behind Nicholas. Uh, and you know what what it's like at Augusta when you just hear these roars off in the distance and you know somebody has done something great. And he described the day roar after roar after roar. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just stood there and it's like thunder from uh, uh, an approaching storm where you hear a class of thunder and then a few minutes later you hear another and another and they're getting ever louder as it gets closer. Uh, that's exactly what it was like that. And, and so – there is not another stage in sports where probably someone is more beloved, any more beloved than Jack Nicklaus was Augusta um, you know, or, or Arnold Palmer or Woods or anyone like that. And to see him do that and see people react to it again, it, it's uh, um, I could have had a year to write that and still would have felt like I, I didn't have enough time to, to do it justice. Yeah, I think sometimes when you think about all the different events and games and things that you cover, um, I know for myself, it's not necessarily the scores or the statistics or even exactly what happened from years ago. It's just the raw emotion. Yeah. And the people, I mean, to me, when you say, well, you like sports, well, I like sports because I like people in it. and, 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 and just the, the different personalities and the different stories. And that's what make the Olympics so great. Uh, I mean, probably one of my, my most memorable moments in covering anything had nothing to do with an athlete. And it was at the Atlanta Olympics. And because I was the first print guy to interview Richard Jewell. Oh, wow. Um, and um, what happened there, you know, he was, well, tell, tell us, tell us about Richard. Okay, Jewell. Richard, um, you know, they had the bombing and he was the security guard who, who, who found the backpack and was moving people away when the thing blew up. And, um, you know, so one person was killed in the explosion. And, and if he doesn't move people away, it probably kills a hundred 
And I'm not sure they can continue those Olympics if that happens. So this is a man, you know, on the face value, you look at it, you think, okay, this, this nobody, nobody knows, um, save the Olympics. So uh, the Sunday morning, I wanted to talk to him. He's the guy I wanted to talk to. Well, I found out he was at CNN. So uh, I found out where their guest entrance is. It was in the fourth floor of their parking garage. So I'm going to wait for him outside the entrance. And I'm thinking, well, this will be fairly soon. Four hours later, he still hasn't come out because they kept waiting to for his slot to come up because they had so much breaking news and everything. He's in their green room or whatever. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, the clock is ticking toward deadline. But I want to stay there. So finally, I see this guy, squat little guy walking out of the door, and it's Richard Jewell. And I interview him in the parking garage. It's, you know, it's like deep throat from, from Watergate. Wow. You know? So I, I, I do a story about, you know, this, this kind of common guy uh, being a hero. So I write the column. And two days later, I'll, I'll always remember this. I was at uh, Modern Pentathlon writing about that. And I look up at the, the, the TV in the press room and they talk about Richard Jewell's become a suspect um, because they, the, the motive thinking that he would do something heroic and get all this kind of attention. Well, if that happened, I would have been one of the first fish on his hook. And so I had to obviously write another column I was very careful in how I wrote it and, and, and saying, look, we don't know yet. I, I hope I wasn't taken in by this, but we don't mm-hmm. know anything yet. Well, a lot of other places really jumped the gun on that. And as we all know, the story turned out that, no, he wasn't the suspect. And, and a lot of people prematurely reported that. And I remember getting a call from his lawyer um, long after saying, you know, we wanted to tell you, we thought you were very fair. We are going to take legal action against a lot of people in the, in the business, but we're not going to take legal action against you because uh, mm-hmm. we thought you were fair. And then I ended up talking to Richard Jewell three or four times uh, after that and uh, actually was good, supposed to have dinner with him in Atlanta, uh, and he died. Uh, so mm-hmm. that that moment, I always remember just standing in that parking garage in, in the CNN parking garage, having no idea what I was headed into, but it was uh, – um, certainly the fascinating part of sports that had nothing to do with sports itself. But those are the kind of people, I mean, again, you were at the Olympics, you, you meet people like that all the time. I mean, people you feel, again, to use your word earlier, privileged. Um, I think there was a guy, wasn't there, you told me once about a Korean wrestler. That, Korean wrestler who had never slept on a bed. Yes, yes. And he was so poor. And they, Korea did like every country did. They had a system in place. If you want a gold medal, you got a bunch of money. And so I interviewed him the day he won a gold medal, and he got, I, I forget what it was, roughly $50,000 U.S., whatever that term, their currency. And so I'm talking to a guy who's going to get a chance at the age of 20-something to sleep in a bed for the first time because he had suddenly hit the jackpot. So, you know, moments like that. In, in, um, in Sydney, uh, while the Olympics were going on there, uh, there was a movie playing in downtown Sydney about the – uh, Munich uh, attack uh, one day in September. Mm-hmm. And it was about on the Israeli team in, in, in 1972. So I decided the story I wanted to do on that is to find somebody from the Israeli team who was in Sydney to go to that movie with me. And I couldn't make it work to get an athlete, but the guy says, well, we have one of our officials here, a, a, a woman who was on that team, would she do? So, well, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, so. So we went to this movie and I'm sitting next to this woman and, and the movie starts and the first scene is the Israeli team landing, their plane landing in Munich and, and the team is coming down the steps. And I hear her next to me say, what a, what a lovely young woman. And I look up there and it's her on the screen. I mean, this 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 documentary is showing her get off the plane, and I'm sitting next to this lady. Right next door. And in wow. that moment, kind of, you know, I was privileged to to, to have been in a, in a job where I could meet that person and talk to her and get to know her. And we watched the movie, and then we talked afterwards, and ended up doing a doing a, a, a story with her. So, you know, moments like that, I I felt privileged. Uh, and so much different than just like you said, this the, 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 had nothing to do with stats or scores or anything. If you got time yeah. for one other Olympic story, I'm a little bit portraying that. There was a, in, in Athens, a sprinter for the U.S., Lauren Williams was her name. And her father uh, was, was Richard, named Richard. And he had a, he's from Pittsburgh, and he had a serious kidney uh, disease, and he had to take, uh, 
daily uh, dialysis. And so I read about this. I thought, well, I want to do a story on this guy coming to Athens, mm-hmm. going because he had to schedule all his treatments in Athens not to see his daughter. So run. So I, I, I talk to him and I make arrangements to meet him at his seat to watch her first seat. And so I'm there and it's getting to be 10 minutes before a race and he's not there. So I call on the phone. I said, Richard, where are you? And he goes, well, I've got plenty of time. I'm on the subway. She doesn't run for an hour and a half. Well, he had gotten the wrong time. Oh, so I said, no. she's, she's taking off her warmups right now. So he's going crazy. So I literally, it's my first and last time as a play-by-play guy. I have to do the play-by-play of her race to her father on the phone who had gone from Pittsburgh to Athens and gotten dialysis, but wasn't going to get to see her run because he had the wrong oh. time. Now that was his first heat. So he was able I just to, got chills. He, oh. he, he was able to, you know, I, I met him later and we were able to, 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 to talk and he was able to, she got the silver medal, I think. But, but that moment I'm on the phone thinking, how can this possibly happen? I'm having to describe to their, to her father, this race. I mean, it was, it was kind of a surreal moment. Wow. Wow, the emotion. That's that's a type of emotion that, again, the great thing about sports is reality television is you just don't know what's what the you don't know what the outcome is going to be of the competition. But you also don't know what kind of stories are going to come out. of. Oh, well, yeah. In Sarajevo, um, I was talking to the team. I wanted to do a column on the team from Lebanon because the war was raging in Lebanon, Beirut then. And so I'm interviewing their, their team at their, their place in Sarajevo at the end of the village. And a guy comes in and is talking to the coach and the guy gets very emotional. I'm thinking, well, what happened? I asked a translator and he said, well, he just found out a shell landed in his home in the mm-hmm. living room, but his wife is okay. And so, you know, I'm suddenly in the middle of that. And, and, and uh, yeah, and that emotion far you know, out distance anything I was going to see probably in a, in, in a sporting event that year. Yeah, I remember in Sydney the emotion of the, the marathon. You know, it's the last event, and the marathon runners finish in the stadium, and it's right before the closing ceremony, so the place is full. And I remember, I can't remember this runner's name, but he was the last guy to finish. Right. And when he came into the stadium like way behind everybody else, you know, everybody had just been sitting there waiting for this guy, you know, like, come on, we want to get to closing ceremonies. And he came into the stadium and the place erupted in applause. And it was not the kind of like, Oh, great. Finally, it was more like of support. And then it, then the applause became rhythmic and they, and the PA announcer was, come on, you can do it. And they was helping the guy around the track finish the very last moment of competition yeah. in Sydney. And, and that's what I remember. I don't remember who won that race. I have no idea. I can't remember. But I remember that seeing that guy, that nameless guy, run around the track with 100,000 people clapping along, trying to urge him to the finish line. Well, in the Olympics, in the Summer Olympics, and I, my rule of thumb was always, when in doubt, go to track and field. Because those were a lot of the great stories. Now, I violated that one day, and I paid a heavy price. I decided, I was thinking, okay, I need to go do something on the women's soccer team because they had become a big, big deal. And so I went to do a story on that, and there was nothing wrong with that. But then I get back to the press room. I always remember that, and I asked somebody, you know, I almost went to track today and said, did I miss anything? And I could tell the look on the face. I was about to hear bad news. <laughs> and that, and I don't even remember the name of this American, but it was the guy who he was running, I think it might have been the 400, and he pulled up lame on the track. And he was in agony trying to finish. And his father hopped out of the stands to help him to the finish line. Now, right. the British runner, British runner, yeah. Any idiot could write that story. I mean, if you can't write that story, but not if you're not there. And so when he told me about this and he kept going on and on and I'm just feeling I've, I've made a mistake. I've been in the wrong place again. And that's the thing about the Olympics. <laughs> as you probably know, there are so many things. One of the big, big, big thing was trying to fit. Where should I go today? Where's the best story? And, and so many times you think you pick wrong. I, I think it was in Sydney when, when um, the U.S. beat Cuba for the gold medal in baseball. Tom Lasorda was the manager. And so I decided to go there because then that was a good story. Well, 
Then I'm watching, the, uh, you know, the computer system there. You can see the results from other sports. That's the night Rulon Gardner uh, beat the, the Soviet guy who had never been beaten in Greco-Roman. I mean, it was a great Cinderella story, but I'm like 30 miles away. So Yeah, me too. I chose wrong also. I was... Earlier in the day, I was standing in the press room with Chuck Culpepper and Joe Posnanski, and we were talking about where should we go, where do you want to go, and I said, I think I'm going to go to the track because Marion Jones is going to win like her 900th gold medal, that whatever. And I went there, and the same thing happened. Yeah, the greatest wrestling upset ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you and I chose wrong. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> not for the first nor the last time. But that's the thing about the Super Bowl. There's only one Super Bowl. You know you are in the right stadium or the World Series, <laughs> the Olympics. You never know if you're in the right place ever. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing is that you know you, even at the Super Bowl, you go there and there's a thousand right you know media right. people and and you're trying to figure out. It's almost overwhelming. Like, you know what? How am I going to make this? Right. you know, relatable to somebody, right. right? It's it's this giant machine. And I think what you always did great was, you know, make it relatable by bringing it down to the individual. Well, I tried to do something different. I remember like one year at the Super Bowl at L.A. And uh, this would have been, I think, the Denver and the Giants, maybe. Uh, I decided, you know, you got these you know, nice hotels and these two quarterbacks that are getting a lot of publicity – what about down the street three miles at a high school in gangland? What's it like for that quarterback? So I picked mm. three high schools that were in, in what you would call the, the some of the, the most violent racked areas of Los Angeles in, the, in gangland, Southern California. And I went to each of those high schools and talked to their quarterback and um, thought that would be a little bit more, you know, the people would – be more interested or as interested in where, you know, what's life, what's life like for these guys? Cause a, a 10 minute drive away, you got Joe Montana or whoever going on. So that was, that was, that was quite an experience. Especially one of the high schools I was at a lot, all the players there were wearing jerseys that day, but it wasn't game day. And I talked to the coach and he said, well, they're burying one of their teammates today. And he had been killed in a, in a shooting. And I remember talking to the quarterback, and he said, very matter-of-factly, he said, well, here's some of our team rules. If during our practice we hear gunfire, we hit the dirt. I mean, he said that as as naturally as he would say, you know, we have water break every 30 minutes. I mean, that was part of their lives. So those are the kind of – I try to do at least one of those every Super Bowl with something that would be really common – um, you know, beyond the game itself, just something relatable to, 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 to people. And particularly the, the best compliment I would ever get from someone, as you well know, most times if someone says, hey, I like your story, it's because you wrote about a team they liked or you had an opinion they share. You know, you could have written it in absolutely t- horrible grammatic mm-hmm. setup, but they'd like it because it's a when someone would say to me, I like reading you, even though I'm not a sports fan, mm, right. that meant something to me because I, that's, that's what I was trying to do. You know, I, I, I didn't, uh, it's a good thing I'm not writing so much nowadays because metrics and I don't get along all that well. I understand their value, but I don't want to have a metrics, you know, fill my story. I, I want human interest stuff to fill the story and talk about people and their stories. And so um, that's what I always tried to do. One of my favorites that you did was, you know, the ABC Wide World of Sports, the great image <laughs> of the ski yeah. ski jumper falling as the face of the agony of defeat. You actually found that yeah. guy, right? When I heard that this guy lived in Sarajevo, when I heard he lived like 20 minutes away, I said, I've got to find this guy. I mean, his, I mean millions of people, and they have no idea who he was. He had, when I talked to him, he had only recently learned how famous he was. Someone had sent him a tape of a, of a wide world sports. And he looked at the, that's me at the beginning, you know, he's falling <laughs> down a mountain. And he talked about that and he, he got up from that. I mean, if people have ever seen that, you, you, it looked like you'd have to pick him up with a whisk broom, like in about 10 pieces. Well, he, he told me that he missed a rock of a huge boulder by about two feet. And had he hit that boulder, uh, we wouldn't have been talking then. And, and that wouldn't mm-hmm. have been ABC. Yeah, that that was, uh, yeah, guys like that. I mean, that was, uh, at the one in Albertville in France, I decided to find, because that was a, a very active uh, French resistance area during World War II. And I thought, well, you know, maybe do a story on that if I find anybody who could know about that. Well, the guy who was the sector chief of the of the resistance in Albertville 
was still alive. And so I went to his house. He's 92 years old. We talked 45 minutes. He was on a exercise bike all 45 minutes at the age of 92. 92. Uh, and so we're talking about what it was like. Was you know This is the Olympic city with all this going on. And we're talking about what it was like back then. And he showed me this book of all these names of these names of his friends and dates next to him. And I said, what were the dates? And he said, that's where the dates they were shot. So, um, yeah, that's, those are the kind of stories I, I, I like to do and, and, and tie them into sports some way. But I always try to try something that normal people, whether they like sports or not, uh, you know, might get something out of reading. When, when, the Olymp- when the NBA Finals were in Oklahoma City, so it was the first big, to my mind, the first big national spotlight on Oklahoma City since the bombing. When you think about the bombing, at least when I think about the bombing, I think about the picture of the fireman holding the little girl. Yeah. Well, I found the fireman oh. and, and he was still a fire. He was still a fireman. And he talked about what that meant to him. He was also a big, which always helped tie into sports, right? He was also a huge Thunder fan. So that kind of fit into that. But I wanted to, you know, we're in Oklahoma City and everyone's talking about Oklahoma City. The last time there were this many cameras in Oklahoma City, that's, that's what was happening. So uh, I always try to do one of those, you know, at least one of those every major event. Is there one that is your favorite? When you when you think about the mosaic of your career, is there one chip that still sticks out in your mind? Um. Probably, I'm going to have to sit there a minute and think about that one. Um, I think the one that was most emotional was Dan Jansen. Um, You know, he was an Olympic speed skater. And in Calgary, um, 1988, he skated the day his sister died back in the U.S. of leukemia. And he was on the phone with her that day, literally in some of her last moments. Mm. And so he skated that night and he fell. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the absolute agony of all he had gone through. Now, flash four years later to Albertville and he won, um, he won the race and he skated around, made his victory lap, holding his little girl who was named after his sister. The emotion of that moment, for some reason, and then I talked to him afterwards, but I wasn't the only one. I mean, it wasn't Dan and me. It was Dan and me and about, you know, obviously a lot of media were on that one. But just the the, the emotion of that moment um, is as powerful a thing as I think I've ever been around on, on what sports could mean and how it, it was an example of the trajectory of this guy's life from one of his worst moments to one of his best. Uh, so, yeah, you know, things like that. Um um, I, you know, a, a moment that kind of sticks with you that, gee, how, how do I end up with this in, uh, Torino, uh, I, the ski jumping, uh, the big power in ski jumping was Poland. And I worked out a way that I could watch the ski jumping with Lech Valenza, who was the president of Poland. And, and, uh, <laughs> Amazing. you know, because I figured, well, this guy's, I mean, that's their sport. So we, and so, and he was also obviously world famous because the guy who kind of led Poland back from the Iron Curtain. So, uh, you know, that's a that's a day that sticks with me. Um, it, just experiences and all that. And in Beijing, I decided to go to work by on a bicycle because all people my age think about when we thought about Red China, you know, back in the sixties, were people on bikes. And I remember biking through Tiananmen Square. I mean, that's that's a moment that lives with me. So those are some of the things. Didn't you find a photographer? Yeah, the the famous the famous picture of the guy standing in front of the tank. I tried to find the guy standing in front of the tank, and and I went through every Chinese refugee group you could possibly think of. No one knows where this guy is. I mean, he could very well be dead for decades. So Plan B was to find the guy who took the picture of the guy standing in front of the tank. And and yeah, that was I mean that was interesting because I, the thing about that made it interesting. Uh, he was in this hotel ready to take a picture. He was out of film. And uh, only because there were some American students there on a field trip and some of them had extra film did he get that to take that picture that ran all over the world. And still you see it all over the world. If that student didn't happen to have extra film, that picture would never have been taken. 
Uh, so, um, well, we, we know that because you took the extra mile, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what I think about. You waited outside, uh, in the parking, parking garage, you waited four hours for Richard Jewell. You always went the extra mile. And I think that's, you took us with you, you know, uh, you went on all these trips, you went all these places, and then you found ways to put us there beyond just who won the game. Uh, yeah, that's what, that's what I that's what I thought my mission was. There were lots of people out there who could tell better than I could who won the game and why. I had to do that a lot of my time. But I but if I wanted to do anything, I wanted to take people there to meet people they normally wouldn't have gotten to meet and a little bit about their spend a few minutes with their story. And so that's what I tried hard at, hardest at. And I'm trying to do that no matter what the event. The Olympics certainly lent themselves to that. But but you could do that on, on, on other events, you know, well, the Super Bowl World Series. I was always trying to look for at least one or two of those way beyond the box score. Well, you did it as well as anyone, Mike, and you're still writing. You're still doing it. And you're doing it and you're beating deadline with two fingers, right? You only type with two fingers. Yeah, Is that yeah, right? Yeah. My, my <laughs> typing teacher from high school, if he's still around, if he ever saw me working on a story, would just be appalled. Uh, I guess, you know, we all have something on our obit, what's going to be, and mine will be Mike Lepresti, comma, the guy who typed with two fingers, comma. Well, it'll be much better than that because you, you made a – you made us all feel part of sports in the last uh, four plus decades, and uh, we really appreciate you sharing the stories with us here. Deadline calls, but it's been a great ride with you, and and really enjoyed uh, hearing some of the places you've been and the stories you told, and and just catching up with you, Mike. I miss you. Yeah, same here. It's uh, what I miss from our old days are the people you're one of. Them. I mean, just the, the people you met in the press box and you shared tough moments with professionally. Uh, those were among the most invaluable things from my career that I'll always remember. And yeah, you're right. I do miss some time. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgrub and her audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.